I don't think we should interfere. Interfere? Of course we should interfere. Always do what you're best at. Welcome to the Hooving Review. I'm Michael. I'm Shelby. They've dubbed me Colin. And I hope we got all that. <laughs> Tonight we're going to... Is it a nightmare if we didn't? <laughs> it could be. Nightmare of Eden is the story number 107 from season 17, and it's the penultimate story, technically, in a roundabout sort of way, because Hordes of Nyman technically was the last story, but Shada was the one that was supposed to be the last story. So And that was what, a writer's strike? Right, yes. Writer's strike took down Shada and unfortunately, yeah. Wow, more. the history of Doctor Who. So, um, yes, this one had uh, some good one-liners, of course, as we always see in this era. And then uh, also, you know, I thought the, uh, the cops in this were really, really pretty funny. Just like the, the depiction of them because they just came in and they were just so focused on the rules that made them incompetent. Well, the yeah, caricatures of the worst police officers ever. I mean, they really I see were. videos these days to make me wonder how far off it is reality in some cases. But, um, but yeah, these guys are just like, uh, yeah, um, you seem like you could be a criminal, so you are, and we may as well kill you. Yeah, and then when they were told, oh, never mind, he's not a criminal, they're like, oh, okay then. Yeah, the judge, <laughs> juries, executioners, all in one. I hope the future doesn't look that way. Well, I mean, this was definitely, <laughs> you know, commentary on the police and drug, you know, trade and, and underground and everything. If you yeah, can call them police. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, anti-police and anti-drug at the same time. Yeah. Well, it certainly seemed that way. Um, also, I have to say, okay, so that, that scientist guy to me just seemed like the most suspicious character (laughs) in there like from the very beginning he's just like everyone's like oh yeah the most likely place for the drugs to have come from is Triss you know expedition and everyone goes over and is like oh it must be one of his assistants and he just like keeps pointing the blame at everyone he's just like oh it's probably his fault the dead guy and uh if you need someone to blame right now it's probably his girlfriend (laughs) and he's just like just behaving like he has the most access to this stuff he would understand how to pull it off and he's just like so obviously like trying to like you know throw suspicion up he becomes this big fan of the doctor and then he blames the doctor well to be fair he doesn't blame the doctor at first actually professor trist is 
very much kind of, he seems pretty innocent, but also he seems like, hmm, I wonder who could be doing it. It's almost like he becomes like the detective with the doctor in the first like episode or two. I don't know. I, I thought he was suspicious from the start. It's those glasses, man. The guy was the most suspicious was the first guy we, that we saw on screen. You know, the, um, oh, the oh, one that happens get... like first mate. Yeah, the one yeah. who ends up getting slashed. I mean, he just seemed like. Oh yeah, what? Who who cares if we go off course? <laughs> yeah. Schedules, schmedules. Well, Nothing matters, and he did it all with the most evil grin on his face. And he has Vrax in his system, so that's why he he doesn't really give a damn. He, he's just like, okay, whatever. Pff, I'm not. I'm just gonna let these two ships crash and yeah, and slide. Got my Vrax. <laughs> but it, here's the thing, though, is that he wanted the two ships to collide because he was trying to get the captain of the other ship, Captain Rig, on board so that he could actually come over and. Be part of the whole smuggling thing. I think he was also so he part of. He was never really innocent. No, he wasn't. I don't think he was innocent. He, but even if he was innocent, man, he was really stupid. Uh, but yeah, it, it's unfortunate that the. It's not Captain Rig. It was the other one. I, I think it was Officer Fisk, maybe. No, Officer Fisk was one of the cops. Oh, okay. I don't know, but we we know who you're talking about. Well, yeah, maybe it was Diamond, De- or Demon. I don't know. Demond. Uh, yeah, but at any rate, Captain Rig was the guy that was basically the captain of the ship that was supposed to pilot it away, and then ended up getting his drink spiked with some flax in it, or blax in it, too. I was like... Well, because oh, someone was trying to dose Romana. Yes. Unfortunately, it went to the wrong person. Uh, uh you wanted to dose Romana? <laughs> not me personally. Good grief. I'm so glad that... <clears throat> on screen. Glad Romana didn't get dosed. Me as well, me as well. But uh, Romana's still in the Tartarus, of course. What a what a lovely you know addition, I would say. I, I still love the time lady presence in the mix, and can't be K nine is another tack on as well. K 9s role in this was pretty pretty spectacular, although it he was limited in terms of some of the the effect that he had on things. I mean, when when he's in charge of the weapon towards the not the weapon but the the energy beam that's supposed to help separate the ships it's like okay how is k9 operating this thing <laughs> well he succeeds in his mission he is still a very good boy yes he is i mean yeah he, he was able to pass through you know the dimensional instability between the ships and also like that one guy shot one of the whatever they called Morlocks, more mandrills, 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 um, and like mandrills. shot him like a gazillion times, and before he went down, and K nine had like one blast off, and it was down. K nine is always like a one shot kill or a stun. No, I know it was just I felt like it was highlighting K 9s you know, superior lasers. <laughs> That's the one problem with K9, though, is that he is a very easy out for a lot of these things. If, if you've got a mandrel right about to do something to you, oh, K9 will blast him. That's fine. No big yeah. deal. What do you guys think of the, the mandrels as a uh, monster of the week? <sighs> they were a bit um, cheesy underwhelming. Yeah, very, very cheesy. Yeah, one of the first times that we saw one, it gets killed very quickly, and the doctor <laughs> makes a point of being like, Ah, oh, you can't get any more dead than this, and you can see the guy's just breathing from his back. Well, to be fair, it wasn't dead. It came, it it got back up again and started attacking him again. So I don't think that that was. I think that was intentional. It was intentional that it wasn't truly dead, and the doctor should have 
known better. Regardless, you know, just seeing the doctor look straight at it and making a point of such confidence when we visually were looking at the exact same thing yeah. and knew that it was not the case doesn't leave a, a lot of credibility for our doctor. I know there's some wackiness and some good, you know, uh, funny coincidence too. You know, he's bending over at one point just as a mandrel is about to take his head off. Well, you know, to be fair, you know, to to give the most generous interpretation of that scene, the doctor could have been lying to Romana and because he was just looking at it and being like, that mandrel's going to be down for a while and was like, don't worry about Romana. It's fine. It's fine. He's dead. I think that interpretation. Romana was apprehensive for sure. Yeah. And I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's exactly what was going on. Um, now, okay, so as a vessel for a highly addictive drug, I thought the mandrels were interesting. Well, also the fact that they are the drug themselves, which makes it even more interesting. It, it kind of a twist on the whole thing. And you don't realize this until one of them actually is killed. Yeah, and it also kind of, you know, I don't know, it, it's like it's taking drug smuggling and you know, making it a little bit akin to, you know, human trafficking <laughs> it, because the drugs that they're smuggling are, in fact, living creatures. Granted, they're not humans, but... In a roundabout way, I guess you could say Stott was being smuggled through that crystal uh, <laughs> teleportation device where he was kind of stuck on, in the... Actually, I, I, would say he, I would say he... Yeah, I don't know if he was being smuggled so much no, as no, stowed away. I, I was be, I was playing on the words because yeah. obviously he wasn't really <laughs> uh, semantics. But I'm just, uh, what did you all think of this of the love story that really wasn't a love story between Dylan and Scott Stott? Sorry. Oh, there was a love story there. Well, yeah, I mean, he's they, her partner. They just talked about how they were like going out. They didn't really show yeah, anything. I didn't think they were. Just, you know, I mean, it wasn't much of a story. It was I more like a love existence anecdote. Me. I guess she, to be fair, she was, excuse me, she was, um... Yeah, I mean, it bored me as well. She, well, she didn't know that he was still alive until, like, towards the end, so I guess that is partially the blame. Uh, honestly, I think that the whole reason behind that being part of this story at all was so, um, Trist would have a reasonable explanation to be able to be like, Oh, well, it was the dead guy, so then maybe he gave it to his girlfriend, you know, type of thing. Like, I, I felt like it, it moved the plot along. It, like, made that lie seem plausible. Yeah. Yeah, and it made their role, you know, have somewhat of a purpose. But, yeah, you could probably tell the story without it. But that's that's probably, you know, some of the charm of the story, too. You know, it was, it was packed full of good moments, one from uh, one next to the other. Um, even when it was just like a simple ship collision that might not be so simple, but of course, pretty simple for the doctor and, and a time lady to I, take care. Yeah, of. I mean, actually, I thought that part was golden. That was great. It was. It was. It was interesting, and it was just like you know the space version of a fender bender that you think must happen. You know, after enough uh, travel in space and time, you know, from vessel to vessel. Especially when one ship is actually dematerializing and rematerializing, where the other is just actually flying. Yeah. It kind of makes some sense. Against it, you know, making sense is that there is a lot of space. Talking about... Ships flowing through. Talking about space and ships, though, I I would have to put out a shout-out to the special effects of this story. Despite the absolute horrible budget they had and some of the bad special effects on board the ships... 
the outer space scenes actually worked relatively well and you get the idea of exactly what they meant by what they did. Honestly, I thought I thought the interior of the ship was actually pretty well done. I mean, it was clearly low budget, but it was it was well designed and, you know, I think well executed for the amount of money they must have put into it. I did feel bad for the actors at one point who were, like, having to pound on that door that, like, if they actually touched would definitely (laughs) break. Fall down. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've gone so far in 30, 40 years, you know, in terms of our, our, uh, you know, special effects, too. Sometimes it's hard for me to compare one episode against the other, but I do do feel like just an episode or two back we had a lot worse ship problems. (laughs) Just in, in visual aesthetic. I think where I was yeah. going with that, though, is also kind of the stunt work, especially with the mandrels and the the unfortunate uh, victims. There really wasn't a whole lot of uh, good choreography with regards, or direction, I should say, with regards to mandrels. It seemed like, A, the people inside the mandrel... Uh, Costumes couldn't really see what the heck they were doing, they so they were couldn't. so they were trying to grab it whatever they could and do whatever they could to make it look realistic, even though it looked absolutely nothing like it should have. And and B, um, I think they were probably so uncomfortable in those costumes to begin with that they were probably just dying to get out, and they probably didn't care enough to get it right. And C. Uh, the pants on it went like halfway down their thighs, so they were all kind of waddling in those costumes too. This is true. And yeah, indeed, you know that's probably why we <laughs> just saw their backs rising. You know, could they breathe in those things? I mean, it's a little concerning. Well, we saw the one that was laying down breathing, so they must be able to. Yeah, breathe I mean, somewhere. like it, I would think he wouldn't have to breathe that hard that we'd see such a rise. I think that maybe it was a poor decision by, like, the director or the actor that, like, they wanted to make it clear to the audience that that thing was, in fact, not dead. Yeah, I think they were overdoing it so that they could show that, yes, this it, thing was definitely not dead. It was a bad decision to Colin's point, though. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, it just makes me think, like, oh, well, it's not implausible that that would be a set mistake because it seems like something that I might be able to pick out in every other episode. Yeah, honestly, I was just assuming that it was just a production error. I was tell- like, oh, that's what happens when you're in suits and you're filming all day long. Yeah. You can't expect this guy to hold his breath every time somebody might step over him. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about those costumes that the passengers were wearing? <laughs> oh, my God. A they costumes? were so ridiculous. It was like, they were like, okay, so we're about to, you know, make a hyper jump or whatever they called it. Like... You know, you must wear your protective gear. And these people are sitting in, like, these full reflective suits as if they're about to get a huge dose of radiation or something. And, like, their hands and their faces are exposed except for sunglasses. And it's like, what? No masks. And not to mention, you know, it doesn't seem like anybody else on the ship is prepared in any similar manner. Yeah. Yeah, it's although I, I mean, is it just some fun hazing trick that they do on you know paying customers? <laughs> <laughs> well, we saw a lot of the same people over. I think one of the things that helps with this is that the costume hides who's in it, so they could reposition some of the people but keep all the same people or all the same actors. Yeah, for every all single the, also it's how that one guy was hiding. Yeah, it's also how they'll well, keep some of them. their money in their pocket by just telling people to bring in their gray sweatshirts and. 
spray something shiny on you. Yeah, exactly. But then also the scene where the doctor's chasing the guy through all the compartments. Yeah. You're obviously going through the same exact compartment with all the same people. It's just that you can't really tell because they all look the same. <laughs> so At, at least, least, of course, we mean they were all white. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, boy. But... Yeah, Classic I mean, it really room. didn't. It really didn't make sense. Um, it, like within the story. <laughs> no, I mean, why would they need protective gear if they're already on a spaceship that should be protecting them in the first place? Right, it's I a really could, good question. If it can protect the crew. Well, yeah, that's true. The the captain didn't have like protective gear all over his head or yeah. goggles. And you think there'd just be like a bunch of you know different power sources and you know other areas of the ship that might also need some protection. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, like this. If you're not going to do it with the whole of an area. It's kind of like the like shuttle. You need to protect a lot of other parts. With... It's kind of like that shuttle that the one guy that was coming back for the drugs got onto a shuttle and then he had to plug in to get his oxygen. I've never seen any science fiction series. No, I mean. Well, that could... guy was probably just on drugs, you know? <laughs> True. He didn't know what the hell was going on. And of course. He had no knowledge of the doctor who just happened to be sitting literally a foot behind him. Well, the doctor did seem very, very sneaky. In that scarf? Oh, jeez. And he, he like, knocked himself out or whatever? Yeah, well... Under doctor power. Puts puts himself into an unconscious state so that he can survive, knowing full well that he cannot have oxygen for a while. Yeah, a state of, uh, you know, suspended animation... The sort of, brain. yeah. You see that throughout multiple doctors, actually. So that's not that's not completely. It's been a while. I, mean, I don't know if I've seen it in New Hill. Uh, true. We've seen the doctor use that on other people. Like he had, sleep. yeah, just go to sleep. This yeah, is true. Well with babies. Yeah, <laughs> Stormageddon. Oh. But yeah, this is an interesting uh, children's program where you have drug smuggling and people getting high. And um, But I mean, it was definitely framed on a like preaches. say no to drugs type oh, thing. Oh yeah, no, I'm not saying that. that so so I think that actually the fact that children viewed it was probably a factor in why they picked decided to do that story. I mean, you know, they were probably like, we need to tell the youth of our country that drugs are bad. Well, I mean, it's science fiction, so it's it's going to have these kind of bigger concepts that kids have to face anyway. And whether the ch- children watch it or not, that's up to the parents. Yeah, like, if the fate of a species, um, you know, was on the line, would you keep it if you also knew that that might also bring into the world and keep in the world the most dangerous drug in existence? Are you asking me personally, or are you, you asking personally, generally? Michael. It, but no, I'm just saying, this, <laughs> it also poses that question, you know, in this episode, too. Because this, this guy clearly has his own scientific motives that, in one sense... Scientific, quote-unquote. Yes, that's how he phrases it. It, it makes <laughs> it seem quite pure, um, you know, about conservation. And I think conservation for conservation makes sense. You never know what ge- genetic diversity might yield in the future for some sort of great medical technology or unfortunately um, he does potential. have to kill them if he does decide to turn them into the drug well yes, but yeah you know, and to he's... perpetuate them perpetuates the drug the drug interest perpetuates 
the species interest. Yeah, but I mean, like, if he was, if really his motives were pure, and he was like, this is, you know, I just care about the research, I feel like he could go to someone, like a government agency or something, and be like, look, I've developed a way, you know, to get this. You know, you guys could store this for research or do whatever you hey, do with it. Sometimes you go through and all the proper channels, the institutional review boards. You, you know, you chain yourself to the outside of the building in protest and activism. And then from there, if you're really passionate and a little bit crazy, you go into eco-terrorism. Well, okay, I mean, yeah, but this guy made it pretty clear that he, you know, was just like, well, I needed to fund my research, and this was the easiest way. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely an, an ends just the, to find the means, you know. And I love how... just scheme, and he doesn't seem to be... I don't think he was afraid of profiteering. No. And I love how the, he asked the doctor at the end there, he's like, well, you're his fellow scientist. Certainly you can understand me doing this. The doctor's just like, get out. Now, that was actually a great arc because we do see that from time to time because the doctor always gravitates th- towards the scientist. Is always like, yay, you know, and often overlooks flaws and clear signs of, you know, betrayal. And every once in a while, he comes back and bites him. And, you know, here we see one of those. And, you know, it always really, like, he feels so much extra worse about it because it was a scientist that, you know, was the bad guy. Now, the CET machine actually... Um, was awesome. Was kind of cool. And it was a cool concept that these creatures could be living in it and then escaping from it. Or that you could actually go into the machine itself and be yeah, basically... You know, unintentionally created, you know, another relative dimension in space. Exactly. The only problem uh, I had with it was when the doctor brings the mandrels back again and there's that whole so-called fight sequence where the the bushes are being thrown around and the doctor comes out with half of his coat missing. And it's just like, oh, why did they have to do that to that beautiful coat? I don't know. Well, it was heavy-handed and poorly executed. Oh, it, but yeah, it was I, silly. I think really, you, I mean, the whole point was that the doctor's sitting there yelling like, oh no, my arms, my shoulders, oh, you're ripping everything to shreds. And you think that they're pulling off, like you're supposed to think they're pulling off his arms and stuff, but it turns out it's the arms of the coat that they're pulling off. Yes. And that's the joke, but it just isn't a very good joke. See, no. I thought the joke when I was watching it was, Oh, the doctor is faking his death in an obvious fake way that these guys are just now taking. And and then I was like, oh, he's wandering out a little bit too quickly. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of weird. There's certain parts of the story that were just ludicrous and just far-fetched. I I think that's on brand for the doctor who experienced that. To some degree, yes, but... I don't know. This Lay it on me. What's what's the worst? I don't know. I think part of it is the whole idea of two ships occupying the same space. Mm-hmm. The whole the whole idea here is that the doctor in multiple points throughout his life actually persuades one half of something to coalesce with the other half of something and it gets destroyed. If you've got two ships that collide together and are basically intertwined with each other because of time and space problems, You'd think that there would be almost impossible to get those undone. I mean, it, it just logical physical physics would just kind of dictate well, that it's kind of done. In, in all the Bob Baker stories, I think it works out, right? 
<laughs> I mean, I I don't know. It just the science in this one just seems to be th a little thrown out the window. I, I mean, not the CET thing that could potentially be. Well, hang on. I, does does that, this I mean, come back awesome. though? I mean, the doesn't like the space Titanic run into the TARDIS and. I mean, it's science fiction. Well, that's the TARDIS. <laughs> Honestly, the melding of some matter to me makes a little bit more sense than, you know, just creating I mean, other relative dimensions in space that you can store creatures. I mean, in I guess I guess you have a point too. You guys are right. You guys have a point. I just actually, I thought that was very plausible. I mean, if what the cruise ship is doing is like dematerializing, rematerializing somewhere, yeah, I, I, it absolutely think... could rematerialize halfway through something. Right. I think that the way that they explain both, it makes sense, but, you know, it, it's cl it clearly is science fiction, but that's... The, the but then being right. able to, to to walk through, or to or for K-9 to go through the, the separations, that part of it also doesn't quite make yeah, sense. Yeah, that without, part didn't make without sense. Without having anything happen to um, K-9. K-9 is a boss. What else more do you need to know? <laughs> well, okay, but any humans or doctors that they're going through... <laughs> That also seems a little bit weird. I don't know. They just it. It seemed like they had it easy. Actually, I think what would make more sense is that there would be no problem crossing between the two because there was only a momentary disturbance, and now the ships are you know actually linked, and the disturbance is gone. So now they just have to recreate it. So they should be able to walk between one and the other. There's probably not a wall there. Yeah, and I like the simple scientific explanation is like, well, if you can get into this situation, and I don't know if it's scientific, but yeah, you know, then you if you can get into the situation, you can recreate um, the circumstances and back out of it. You know, equations run in both directions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and yeah, technically you can. It would just be difficult to like know how to do that yeah, and to be able it, to do that it. always seems just like you know time word power to me yeah it it's does it's just like oh we know some weird inextricable math that you know we're not going to explain but it's just super intuitive but I me. mean this this but, is also kind of in their wheelhouse I mean it's it's about a you know rematerialization error <laughs> well the doctor also constructed that whatever yeah, about, it was relative to, dimensions in space yeah that too the doctor was, got to tinker with whatever it was that he was constructing to separate, but it just seemed like he was just throwing like little pieces of metal and little shoestrings and things together, and just like hoping, hoping that it would go okay. And it's just like you're gonna rely on this. <laughs> you know what's you know kind of I think wacky canonically about this. What is just how seemingly actually fairly easy it is to create other dimensions in space. I know that there's a lot more to a TARDIS than just that, but that seems like a hope. pretty big deal to do on such a scale, which would seems to be, you know, very rudimentary, very primitive technology from the Doctor's perspective. Like, it seems like you could just have those all the time everywhere. <laughs> it would be really convenient. In fact, maybe that's why the Doctor can keep all that stuff in his coat pockets. Yeah, I mean, I, have you <laughs> ever seen him get to the end of a bag of jelly uh, yes, but it's rare. It is rare. It, it is rare. It is rare. But also, I'm sure he has multiple bags in there. <laughs> At least the fourth doctor. The yeah. second doctor actually was the first doctor to bring in the jelly babies. Ah. Just to give you a little bit of... Um, doctor Who history. Yeah. And Doctor 6 and 8 both use jelly babies as well. 
Um, so basically, Twelve. all even numbered doctors seem to have. Michael, would you like a jelly baby? I would love one. Do you have one? So we used to keep them, you know, on hand pretty regularly. I know. And Shelby, every time she'd come over, would be like, would you like a jelly baby? And we're in the middle of the podcast, and here you can hear me munching on them. So I remember those days. It's just so fun to do. Oh, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's perfect. It kind of works for what we're going, especially if we're doing Tom Baker stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cheesy. Because it is. it's fun to do. Uh, is it a fondue? Exactly. <laughs> I think we should rate this episode now. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go into it then. We've said a lot about this episode. Um, it's not without its flaws. I, I think we can all agree with that. Mm-hmm. It's not with the most epic moment or the grandest scope in Doctor Who. Um, as I said before, it really starts out with just a fender bender. And it's <laughs> it's a more complicated one than one might seem. Um, and then you peer into it a little bit more, and it's more complicated than that. Now it's a drug bust, and you got the cops... Coming down your alley to deal with all that as well, um, but I like how it goes into a few different directions. Um, I think it has really excellent pacing to the point that there might be a few extra elements here, but they add meaningfully for the plot and the story, even if it's just like a little bit extra flavor and anecdote here and there. But I think it keeps attention to the point that we were debating whether or not to just do two episodes tonight, um, or to go on through to the the whole four. Maybe not do any tonight. <laughs> Um, but after we did the first two, we knew that we were all going to push through and, and go forward. So I think that says a lot in and of itself. Especially you, Colin. Yes, especially me. <laughs> um, and I, I, I love, you know, Ramana in this era. I love the addition of K-9 wherever he is. And, you know, the monster of the week, you know, while, while flawed, I think, um, had some fun other potential and, you know, another kind of philosophical bend to it as well. Um, and, and good other, you know, interesting characters that were unique in and of their own right. Um, for me, this is, this is a really solid episode. It's, it's honestly nothing particularly special, um, but it's enjoyable. And, you know, this is going to get a really solid 7 out of 10 for me. All right, yeah. Um, I actually, I, I liked the science things in this. I thought it was kind of fun that, you know, the one thing materialized inside of another and you know that that also ended up being part of the intrigue of the whole thing and uh you know the creation of the you know relative dimension and space to host eden and the other places was was cool i mean it really was like the doctor and ramana showing up into a situation in which they were like we know everything, and it's reasonable for us to know everything. And, uh, you know, I thought it was fun. It, to Colin's point, it was paced really well, which I feel like rarely happens in an episode where you're, like, in some sort of confined space, like a spaceship, and, you know, people <laughs> are kind of running around. But in this one, it, it, really, uh, it really worked. And, yeah, there were a lot of flaws with it, for sure. It was you know, cheesy. If they had those costumes and special effects nowadays, I would obviously rate it a lot lower, but given what they could do at the time, <laughs> gotta be a little more forgiving on it, but I am... Relative ratings in space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, also, I just want to point out, and I know this hasn't isn't this episode, this is for the future, but uh, when 
they pull out the stasis cubes for the 50th anniversary, the concept of Time Lord art, capturing a moment of space-time and putting it in a painting, you know, and we were actually freezing a point in space. Um, that, like, that seems like very similar type of technology. Yep. So it is kind of funny if you think about it in the context of, you know, the characters of Dr. Romano would know this, and that could be what they're referring to. Like, ah, oh, yeah, we just do this in school exactly <laughs> um but anyways th th this was this was pretty solid um not the greatest i am also going to give it a seven out of ten one thing i did forget to mention was the whole scene where well the whole point was that the lead cop investigating the doctor and thinking the doctor was completely guilty of all this drug smuggling it took him two seconds to listen to Stott and change his mind 100% and have a full turnaround. And that seemed a little ridiculous. To oh, me. I thought that was great. <laughs> I, no, I did. I, I thought that was a commentary on, you know, the oh, character. I, I'm not saying there. it wasn't. I'm just saying that was just like, oh, please. At any rate, um, this, does, this is an eye roller. It is entertaining very much similarly to The Creature from the Pit. And because it comes from this season, it doesn't surprise me that this story typically gets a bit of criticism and a bit of love as well. Um, I think there's a silliness to this season that goes through each and every story. Um, City of Death is definitely one of the silliest stories, even though... It is one of the most compelling and one of the most overloved, maybe. Um, in this case, Nightmare of Eden, I think um, it it gets a little bit more adult, which is good, but at the same time, it still has a very kid-like, childlike element to it that just kind of captures your kind of inner child and just wants you to go with the doctor wherever he's going in Ramana and Canine. And um, and in this case, the doctor tries to take charge. And in typ typical Do Tom Baker style, at first he succeeds, but then he fails miserably with these god-awful <laughs> police officers. And that's very unusual for Tom Baker to fail so miserably. So it's kind of fun to see the doctor do that. Um, was this hokey? Absolutely. Was this silly? Absolutely. Was the monster of the week ridiculous? Almost back to Patrick Troughton style monsters? Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give this a 6 out of 10. I don't think quite deserves that 7. It's not as solid as, in my opinion, as it, uh, you guys are making it out to be. But it is enjoyable. And so it's not nearly as bad as Creature from the Pit. Um, and, and I do, this has a soft spot in my heart. I don't know why it's, it wasn't one of the last stories I ever saw of all of the classic doctors. They were having fun with it. Yeah. It just, it was just one of those things where I'm just like, I don't know. It, it's definitely for me, at least it was one of the more memorable stories from the season. Yeah, I think, you know, while there's a lot of, you know, silliness to this, you know, season and it might be overt. Um, I think it really has its place in a, a soft spot in my heart for classic Doctor Who, because oftentimes I'm feeling like in the classics, they take it very seriously and they can't quite deliver on the message of how serious it is because of their limitations in, um, you know, ways to tell stories, but I think more so just the technology involved and what they actually want to pull off and what they want to show and set design and the, the budgetary constraints that they have as well. So I, I think with what they have, it makes sense to, to bring a little bit more silliness 
um, bring, you know, some absurdity because there's always some elements of that in Doctor Who. And I think sometimes it's good to lean into. To a degree. I think if you overdo it, it becomes more of a parody of its own show. Um, and you don't want it to be laughed at. I think when we were doing season 24 uh, and it became so pantomime, um, that silliness was a very big detraction. Which, which one's season? 24 is Sylvester McCoy's first season. Oh, yeah. Um, and you've got Paradise Towers, Delta and the Bannerman, Time and the Ronnie, Dragonfire. Um, none of those stories, in my opinion, quite have the quintessential seriousness that you need for Doctor Who um, in, in, the, in the sense that it moves the story and, and makes it a little bit more plausible. I mean, yes, there's going to be a lot of silliness throughout Doctor Who, and there's definitely, I mean, the comedic factor is important to Doctor Who, and I think it always has been there. Even back to the William Hartnell days, there's definitely, um, uh, there's some stories, even during the William Hartnell era, which are quite obvious that they're played for as funny. We already rated the Romans, which you have Barbara being chased by Nero the Emperor um, all throughout three episodes. So it's like, okay, how can you get it any more silly than that? Um, and he they just... can find a way. <laughs> I'm sure they can. And this season, that kind of thing kind of pr- proves it. But given the fact that we've now gone through every single story for this season, I, I would say that season 17 is one of... Is for a lot of the old school fans, they figure that this is one of those seasons where Doctor Who started to go south. Um, Tom Baker wasn't being taken as seriously. He'd already been in the role for five years. I think a lot of people thought, okay, Tom's starting to wane a little bit. Um, I I can see why they would say that, but I think also that the relationship between Lala Ward and Tom Baker were extremely good in this season. And I think that's what helped carry this season through, was that the fact that the two leads were so good and so vastly in love with each other to to a degree that their chemistry kind of spilled out. And I will say that that that's probably the saving grace. Also, I think there were there were some decent moments and really good one-liners, as you had pointed out, Shelby, especially including the one that we used at the beginning of this one. Um, some of the most classic quotes of all Doctor Who's history come from season 17. Yeah, like I liked in this one also when they asked the Doctor's birthday and he's like, I don't know, it's quite soon probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that plays upon a lot of what the doctor would do even now. I of course, now we know the doctor. That's wrong. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, I could see Matt Smith or David Tennant or Peter Capaldi saying something along the exact same lines. Yeah. Um, so it's not without reason that, um, that that would make sense. I think, I think also this season um, does, it, it seemed like the budget did seem to go down slightly. So they had to concentrate. And I think in this story, they found out, oh, well, okay, we're not going to be doing our very last story. So we may as well just go ahead and throw as whatever we can into Nightmare of Eden. I don't know if that Nightmare of Eden was the last story that they created, but I'm sure the special effects happened to be some of the last special effects worked on for this story. Because then they probably did actually have a little bit more budget not having to finish Shada. So hopefully that could be that could explain that part. But at any rate, well, 
I think we've concluded this. Anybody have any final words? Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Oh, wow. Okay. I was thinking of other final words. But at any rate, take care. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Bye.